0: Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. I don't know if you've experienced this, but probably if you've gone anywhere and then had to describe where you went to someone, you might have experienced this. Have you ever experienced the moment where you want to try to describe or explain something to somebody and you just can't, the words just don't work to accurately describe what you're trying to describe? Um, a Couple weeks ago, I, uh, Brett Richmond and I Went uh, on a motorcycle ride, probably more than ride, but we went to Alaska and back. And and uh, I was I was telling I've been telling people and like telling Sherry about like just how beautiful uh, the scenery was going through British Columbia and, and Yukon Territory and into Alaska. And one of the interesting things about at least the route we took, we were always by a river or a lake. And it is it is the lakes in throughout Canada up there are just almost indescribable. Like the color of the water is just so unbelievable. It's hard to describe. And and so really, as I was describing the lakes to to Sherry, I just said, um, they're just not like, they don't look like our lakes. (laughs) Which I don't know if that's really that helpful. Uh, Describing something by what it's not. But you know, sometimes I think that is the only way we can even begin to understand how incredible something might be is to just say it's not what you're used to. (laughs) It's not what you've experienced. And, And I think this is the struggle that God is for his family. That there's a lot of things that God is expressing to us that words just won't be all that helpful. And sometimes, as in even today, there's a little bit of this that that sometimes it's just to describe what things won't be like, <laughs> as opposed to us being able to understand what they will be like. Maybe saying what's absent from our experience versus what is a fullness of our experience. And, and so here's, here's, a, here's, the I think, the truth. These two things are true, and it's hard that these two things are true. First, life for every single one of us will at some point be disappointing. Every single one of us, and probably many of us, it already has been. We've already been through things. But if you haven't, just a heads up, life at some point will be really disappointing. It'll be hard. It'll, it, you will have reasons to grieve, to be sad, to, to want to throw in the towel, all of those things. But at the same time, what God has in store for his family is so significant and fantastical. And I learned last Hour, last uh, last hour that that is a legitimate word fantastical um, it's so significant and fantastical that the the worst of this life really is like nothing in comparison but that doesn't make the grieving that we experience in this life not real or easy but but that's the tension that's that frustrating tension that we live in that that we experience things that are difficult and suffering and, and trials and, and, and we grieve about those things. Yet at the same time, what God has promised and, and provided for us and prepared for us is unbelievable and actually cast a shadow over those difficult things that those things disappear even though we feel them with their full force right now. Last week, we, we started looking at, at the, the letter that Peter writes to uh, kind of the, the, the scattered churches throughout, uh, throughout the, the edges of the, of the empire. And the thing that we have to remember from last week is this, that that, one, that that the very foundation of what he's writing to these people is reminding them who they are, that they are chosen by God's foreknowledge they're set apart by the Holy Spirit and that they are set apart for obedience to Jesus. And if that's kind of like, well, explain to me all those things, check out last week's message because we kind of get into, into, into the depths with that. But he basically remind, tells them, this is who you are. And now he moves into this place of, of talking about really something that is, stands in tension with our experience. And he recognizes that and he pulls that out. So uh, 1 Peter chapter one, starting in verse verse three. I'm just gonna read through the, I'm gonna read uh, parts of the passage. Um, So starting in verse three, he says this, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he kind of takes this place, the platform of you are chosen, you belong to God. He knew what his plan was And the Holy Spirit, now that you've responded to him in faith, has set you aside, set you apart for obedience to Jesus Christ, which is ultimately, in its simplest form, making disciples. And and, and so he says that God has caused us to be born again, born again, reborn, rebooted to, to this living hope. The idea of being born again is that we've been adopted it's, we've been opened up to our new forever family and new secured inheritance, the, the thing that changes everything about us. We've been placed in a different family from the family that we were in. And he says that you've been born again to a future hope or a living hope. That, 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 that we tend to use the word hope in a way that is not really accurate to to the word hope. We tend to think, when we think about hoping for something, it's more along the lines of we're wishing for something. But that's not what hope is when you read it in the Bible. Hope is not like, well, I hope hope it's cooler tomorrow. That doesn't have any basis in reality. (laughs) That could happen, it might not happen. But hope in the Bible and how Peter uses the word hope is this, it is not a wish, but it is an expectation. It is a future event that we are waiting to happen and it is going to happen for sure. That's what hope is. When he says we have this hope, it's not a wish. It's a secured future event that we don't know when it'll happen, but it will happen for sure. So hope is not used in the context of this might or might not happen, but it's absolute. And so he says, we are born again to this living hope, this living hope, which he says is made possible by the resurrection of Jesus. So what exactly is this living hope that we've been born again to? It is the inheritance, as he says, that we have secured, that has been made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what exactly is this inheritance that God has prepared for and promised to his children? Well, it's everything that that we see that God has said, this is what you have in Christ. It's, It's the resurrection from the dead that we are promised. It's eternal life, both the ongoing part of eternal life and the quality of eternal life that he offers us. It's a whole new world, a new fantastic point of view, Some of you will be singing that all day long and will hate me for the rest of the day. Teresa won't. She's super happy that she's now singing that. But really, we have a whole new world and a whole new heaven and earth that he promises for us. That we will live in. He promises that that there will be be a a prevailing and perfect justice and righteousness that we will be a part of. And, And that's like, not even remotely scratching the surface. There's so many things. And and if you remember like the idea of, like sometimes just words don't capture the depths and the breadth of something. And it's interesting because, because the way Peter describes this inheritance, he basically describes what it's not. And so he says, this inheritance that we have that is our living hope, that is, is, he says it's imperishable. In other words, it will never expire. We can't miss it. We can't be like, get there and say, oh, this expired three weeks ago. It never gets thrown out. He says it's undefiled. It's unblemished. It's clean. It's unbroken. I don't know how many of you, I mean, how many of us have, have like, Maybe sacrificed for something and and built this thing up in our head that we that we ordered or that we bought, and it finally gets to our house and it's it's blemished or it's it comes broken. And then you're kinda like like and then you're like, well, what do I do with this? Do I just live with this or do I go through a process of returning it? What do I do? Like that's not gonna happen with our inheritance. (laughs) It is undefiled and it cannot be defiled. And, and then he says it's unfading. In other words, it's not, temp- it's, it's, it's not temporary. Everything we have fades, doesn't it? The most quality things we have in life fade. That's just how it works. But, but he says it is unfading. It will not fade like the things that are in this world that you've experienced. And he says, and it's kept for you in heaven. In other words, it's protected, secured. There's nothing that can steal it. There's no, like a bank vaults can be robbed. We've seen thousands of movies about that. But but like what he has for us, our inheritance cannot cannot be taken away. And not only does he say that our inheritance is is protected, but he says that we too are protected by God's power. And we need to understand what Peter is saying because what he's not saying is that protection equals that we will never suffer or face difficulties. We can, we can go as far as Hebrews 11, even starting in verse 32, spend some time reading that to see that you've got faithful people in, in, in God's kingdom who have suffered greatly for being faithful. And so, did God not protect them? No, he did protect them. But see, here's what what protection means under this is that, in fact, faith sometimes does, does not keep us from trouble, but in fact, sometimes our faith is likely to lead to the experience of more precise trouble because of it. Again, you look at the example of those in Hebrews, they had more precise and specific trouble in their lives because of their faith. Well, when, when, when Peter writes that we are protected by God's power, the protection that God offers is a protection that will save us for everything he wants for us and no one can do anything to take those things away. He'll care for us and give us endurance through the most difficult things in life until the day that Jesus returns, which is the last day and we experience our inheritance that, that is all of these things imperishable, undefiled, unfailing, un, unfading, and kept secure. And, and so, so really where Peter begins to build is from the place that we are chosen by God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, and then it says that we have this new birth, we are reborn, rebooted into this living hope, which is our inheritance, that is beyond our most extreme imaginations. But then here's the tension. Verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So so he recognizes this, that, that joy characterizes our lives when we understand and internalize what God has promised and prepared for us, and that is a real thing that we we have such a hard time wrapping our heads around because it is so incredible. He recognized and he says, we find joy in this even though you face real trouble, suffering, persecution, difficulty, and grief. Even though you're in the midst of that. There's this thing that overshadows it. But what you're feeling is real. But it's interesting, the way he describes this grief is the opposite as to what he describes the inheritance. He says, it is for a little while. You know, what, you know what defines a little while? A little while is perishable. It will expire. A little while means it will expire soon. It's defiled, it's broken, it's blemished. This little while that we're in isn't perfect, it has some elements of beauty, but it is not beautiful, it is fading, it is temporary, it will not last, even in the midst of it, while it is maybe heavy and weighty and we struggle, it is temporary and finally it's, it's vulnerable in, in the way that it is shaky and it is weak It cannot, it's not kept, it's not secure. It will go away. It'll be removed at some point. Sometimes I wonder if it would be helpful if if the things that we are grieving in, if we recognize those and maybe even name them and then remind those things that they are temporary and that they will expire and that they are weak and that they are damaged, and that God will replace those things with something that we can't even begin to imagine, but it is the exact opposite of what that is. In fact, it's, it's interesting, because Peter then goes into this example, and he says, this idea of being purified. And he goes to, to, to the testing of our faith, and he uses this example of gold, to help us understand. It's interesting, gold has been something of value since the beginnings of of humanity. It's always been, for some reason, perceived as valuable. And it continues to be seen as valuable. It continues to to have value. It's a precious metal. It's been valued throughout all, pretty much all of human history and continues to be valued. Even even when it seems ridiculous that gold has value, when food, when food is scarce, gold still has value. <laughs> and, and, and so it's interesting because, because gold is better than paper currency of any nation. I mean, the, the value of paper uh, can be worthless if, if a nation is conquered or a nation, uh, their economy crashes, but gold still has value beyond that for some reason. In fact, just the other day, an ounce of gold was worth $1,810. It's predicted by analysts that by 2025 gold will be probably somewhere between three to four thousand dollars an ounce. So it's it's valuable in our in our world, and it was valuable in Peter's day. But the interesting thing is gold doesn't last. It can be destroyed like all things. But, but what he says is that, that gold is purified through a process because if you have gold, you want pure 24 karat gold that's been through a process. You don't want gold that is impure and makes it devalued and worthless. Here's what's interesting. In this, Peter is saying, you are God's gold. <laughs> we are God's gold. That, that, that we are called God's treasured possession. We are God's treasured possession and, and we are like that to him and he will remove the impurities and things that are not reflective of his character in us through a process of refining and maybe it's not a literal fire but it is a fire of suffering and trials which will be difficult but they will result in our, in our perseverance, in our, in, our, in our refining and in our purity. You see, if a person is serious about investing in gold, they would not want gold that's not pure. (laughs) I mean, that'd be foolish. Why would you invest in gold that's not pure? Because it is a valued possession and probably you're investing in it for your, your own security, No one who's serious about gold would want gold that's not pure, and neither does God want his treasured people to be impure because he is serious about us. And in in some ways, unfortunately for us, the only way we can be refined is through difficulty. We aren't refined by getting what we want and being happy, (laughs) And and what, what Peter is saying is that this refining process is temporary. It expires. It has a purpose in your life. But know that what Jesus has promised and prepared for you is unreal compared to what this little moment has and the weight and the grief in this moment. And so then he says, he says, even though we haven't seen Jesus, like Peter got to walk and minister with Jesus, he says, even though you haven't seen him, you trust him and you believe him. Even though you don't see him now, you are persevering and you are allowing him to refine you and, and, and you are walking through. See, the people that Peter is writing to, they are facing some trials and things. I mean, some of these people have been scattered from Jerusalem because Stephen was murdered for his faith and witness. And so Peter says, look, there is this refining happening. Don't just look at it from a human perspective and think I'm being abused or, or picked on. Understand it in the concept of this is temporary and it will have an effect of causing you to be more like Jesus. And what he has for you is so much greater than what you're enduring right now. So persevere and endure because of what God has prepared for you. In other words, Jesus is worth what he asks for because he gives so much more. Then he goes to this example of of history, and and in, in, in verse 10, he says this. He says, concerning this salvation, because this salvation is what opens the door to this living hope that we have. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, that you experience this, that you know the story of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection. This grace that was to be yours searched, inquired carefully. In other words, these prophets who were talking about this, they didn't really understand what they were talking about. And they were trying to figure out, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for those in the future? He says, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating as they were writing down these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. They were wondering, what's going on? When is this going to happen when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So he looks back to the witness of of history past, and he says this inheritance, this living hope, this, this thing that comes by way of salvation through Jesus Christ, is what the prophets were talking about. And here's kind of the flow of what I just read. Christ's spirit, or the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, gave the prophets a glimpse of what God had prepared for humanity. That God would redeem Israel and the whole of creation. He didn't give them specifics, but God gave them assurance that he would absolutely act. They had a living hope as well. They knew that it was gonna happen because they knew that they would not experience this firsthand and see it come to happen, but they were joyful that that day would most assuredly come. And Peter's saying, it has come. And now in part, it's been revealed to you, and you can at least cognitively understand this, that it is just a little while that you'll face grieving But what God has for you is so much greater because of the salvation that Jesus brings. You see, we are involved in God's mission and we don't expect it to be accomplished in our lifetime. Yet if we are faithful in the assignment we are given on that mission, we have the joy of knowing that Jesus' mission will be accomplished and we can participate in that joy now, just like the prophets rejoiced in the salvation that Jesus would bring. The ancient prophets rejoiced because of what they glimpsed, even though it had not come to pass and they didn't understand the fullness of it. And so we are in that place of the prophets when it comes to our inheritance. And even just at the end of of what he says there, he says, basically, and furthermore, not even the angels, the spiritual beings that God created, not even those who've been around for well before humanity Existed that God created mankind. They can't comprehend this living hope. (laughs) Like it's lost on them. With all they experience and all that they see behind the curtain, it is unbelievable to them the inheritance for the image bearers of God, of the one true God. So it says they even long to get a glimpse into this. So here's where kind of it hits us. We are living in the little while. And that's really hard to grasp because the little while is all we know. (laughs) It's all we know, but it is the little while. And it's really hard for us to get this. I think probably most of us don't get this. I think there's maybe precious few people who really can internalize and truly understand what's going on here and live in a way that is it is reflective of being in the little while overshadowed by the inheritance to come that's already been secured and is already ours. Came across the story of a pastor in Nigeria who I, who I think gets this. This idea that, that he's living in the little while and that his inheritance is so great that whatever Jesus asks him to endure in this time, that Jesus is worth it. His name's Emmanuel. And on February 27th of 2021, he was praying with in his house in the Kaduna region of Nigeria, along with his wife and his mother-in-law. And within minutes of after they finished their prayer time, they heard gunshots outside, not like gunshots you read on Nextdoor app, but real gunshots. Um, And he heard gunshots outside and all of a sudden, militants from the Fulani Islamic, uh, from the Fulani Islamic group broke down his door and came into his house. They ripped the curtains off of the walls and blindfolded him, his wife, and his mother-in-law. They took their phones and destroyed them and took a box that had some money that, was, that had belonged to the church that he pastored. And the leader of the group said, you're going to suffer in the bush, and if we like, we might kill you. But Pastor Emmanuel, in that moment, blindfolded, responded to the kidnappers and said, I've given myself over to God and I am ready to die. So then they took the three of them and took them into the forest. And as they were going, they, uh, the mother-in-law was kind of having a hard time making it through the forest and she was frustrating the, the kidnappers. And so even though he was begging them to, to release her, they they decided, finally got frustrated, and one of, the, one of the kidnappers hit her in the back of the head with the butt of his rifle, and another one took his machete and slashed her on the back of her neck. She did live, and she was found later, but she was left there for dead. And, and they went further, and, and the kidnappers decided that the pastor's wife was inconsequential, and so they talked about killing her, but then they decided to let her go, give her directions back to, to, the, to the village and that she would take the message of their ransom that they wanted for this pastor. And so finally, they, after walking for hours, they got to the, the kidnapper's camp, where Emmanuel describes the most difficult month of his life. It says, during the daytime, he was bound, blindfolded, and guarded by armed militants. At night, he and other kidnapping victims slept on the ground where maggots crawled around their hands and feet. He says, our abductors used to go into town and buy sodas and plastic bottles, and we would beg for them to throw them on the ground so that we could put our heads on them at night so that worms wouldn't crawl into our ears. He was beaten frequently, sometimes so severely that others in the camp thought that he had been killed. He had broken ribs on his right side, broke, broken fingers on his left hand, and they cut him repeatedly with machetes on his lower back. He said, the beating was a compulsory thing. On Sundays, they beat me because I was a pastor. There was a day they saw me praying and they almost beat me to death. I didn't even know I had fainted. After three days, I heard some of the other captives talking about my death as I was waking up. So they wanted $12,000 from the pastor's family for his ransom and they threatened to kill him if they wouldn't pay. They took him to a pit where there was bones, and they showed him the bones of a three-month-old baby that the militants boasted that they had shot on on the mother's back while she was carrying her baby. And so Emmanuel responded to them at that point, saying, if God says I will die here, then that will be my fate. If God says I will live, then I will live. After a month and one day, Emmanuel was finally released and returned to his family and he had a hard time adjusting to the light because he'd been pretty much in darkness for just over a month. Following his release, he found out that the leader of his village was the one who arranged the kidnapping because he wanted to silence the pastor's Christian witness. He didn't like hearing the gospel preached in his village. The community leader was arrested but was detained for only two months and then released. Emmanuel resumed his duties in the same community where he was kidnapped. And he says, there was a day someone asked me to leave my station because of what happened, and I said to them, if I leave there, which pastor will want to serve in this community? If I can endure it, it will be an example to others. He said he sometimes struggles when he hears gunshots because it brings all of that back, but he takes encouragement from Psalm 23 and believes that God will care for him even if he is kidnapped again. He says that he, he says that, uh, he, he says uh, if, it is as if that day is happening all over again, but when that happens, I pray, I depend on God. I know that persecution is part of the Christian life. We who are Christians will suffer. this doesn't happen to us, the Bible is not fulfilled. He actually sees his kidnappers occasionally. But this is what he says of those moments. He says, I don't feel fearful or angry when I see them. All I can do is pray that God touches them. Forgiving them is necessary, because God has forgiven me. If I know God, if I know Jesus Christ, I must forgive them. When I read that, I thought, I, one, I can't wrap my head around, even the least extreme things that he went through. (laughs) But here's someone who is living in the little while that Peter describes. And it seems to me that he has a living hope, that he understands that Jesus is worth the obedience that he asks of him, that he's willing, whatever it takes, Because what Jesus has in store for him is so unbelievably more than what he's experiencing in this little while. And I'll just be honest, I have no real concept of what it really means to be refined in that way. But I think a good question to maybe ask ourselves is, is: Do I even believe that this inheritance that Jesus has is worth what obedience to Jesus requires? And if I do believe that, does my life reflect it? Chances are that, chances are maybe your answer is like mine: that conceptually I totally understand this concept, but it's really hard to live out because as We have well established. Life is disappointing and we live in grief often. One of the things that I have come to conclude as I've been working through this and praying through this is that I've I've realized that I can't just decide to be aware of the truth that God speaks in his word. I actually need his spirit and others in the body of Christ to help me. And I think part of this is that oftentimes when we are grieving, people give well-meaning but really shallow answers to us. I think it's interesting that when we maybe lose a loved one, people say, well-meaningly say, well, they're in a better place. I think that's probably hard to hear when someone is not in a very good place here regardless of where their loved one is. I don't know how helpful that is. It's not that it's not meant well, but I think God calls us to be present with each other in our sufferings rather than just to be giving each other platitudes, no matter how well-meaning. And so, one of the things that I've been working on this week is, and it feels so it feels so weak and lame compared to the experience of people like Pastor Emmanuel. What I've been practicing this week is when there's something that I don't wanna do or something that I feel like God has set before me that is hard or difficult and I don't want to obey what Jesus is asking of me or if there's something that happens that I don't like that's difficult or disappointing or brings me to a place of grieving that that I literally and out loud say, okay, Jesus, is what I'm facing right now is the decision I have to make, is the obedience that you're asking of me, is this situation that I'm going through, is this worth what you have promised and prepared for me forever? And I think that changes the perspective a little bit. But what I also need is I need to make sure that the people in my life around me know that they have permission to with with great truth and empathy and love to confront me with who I am, who I belong to, and what is waiting for me. I think that we need to be in each other's lives so that we can, with all of our presence, walking with each other in our grief, remind each other that this is the little while. And while our grief is real and heavy, that it is worth what Jesus asks because of what he has prepared for us. And so we need to maybe begin to remember and permit others to remind us the reality of our living hope even when life is hard. I going to invite the the worship team to come back up. Our plan was to do communion this morning. And we did it in the first service. But some people were saying, we did communion last week, why are we doing it this week? (laughs) Well, because last week I felt pretty strongly that it fit with what the passage was about. And, And to be honest with you, for about 500 years in the Christian church, the sermon was not the central focus of the gathering. It was, the breath, it was the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That took center stage. And so, I don't know, this is, I think, kind of a cool thing. Because we did communion last week, and we did it the first service, and because of shipping, <laughs> but more so because the last couple weeks, there's been more people here gathered together than we've had for a long time. Whether you're, it looks like that or not, (laughs) it's true. And so first service we ran out of the communion cups and packets, which I think is a bit of a divine plan because we're still gonna do communion today, but we're gonna do it a little bit different. So I would ask you today as you go have lunch, however you lunch, with whoever you are having lunch with today I want you to take whatever bread thing you have and whatever drink you have, and I want you to take it and remember and remind each other that just like this bread, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was broken, and just like Jesus' blood, what's in this cup is poured out for your salvation to secure your living hope, which is your inheritance in Christ Jesus. I want you to do that today, because you know what, that's what they did in the early church. I'm I'm quickly coming convinced that we should probably do communion every time we gather, every time you share a meal with someone else in your home, every time we get together wherever we are. Because, it helps us to remember that we are in the little while and that what Jesus asked for today is so worth what he's prepared for us tomorrow. And so as we kind of finish the service and and we worship together, I wanna invite you to participate in communion, just not this second, but later today. And maybe just see what God does in that. As he reminds you who you are, that you are chosen, that you are born again to a living home because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how much he loves you. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.